So we're going uh, right along here in the book of Hebrews, which is our current preaching series. And uh, this series we're calling A Crisis of Faith. And what we realize is that uh, many of us are experiencing a crisis of faith. Are the things that we've put our hope and our trust in worthy of that? And do they deliver on their promises? And oftentimes, even if we've been walking with God, we ask that same question of Him. In fact, whether you're in a crisis now or not, you've probably recently come out of a crisis or you might be about to walk into one because crises of faith are very common. They're not rare. And in fact, we see in the book of Hebrews that this was a people living in the city of Rome who were in crisis. They were asking, is it really worth following this Jesus of Nazareth? Is the persecution that we're facing because we are Christians worth it? They were having a crisis of faith. So before we get into Hebrews chapter 3 today, let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, we are so grateful uh, that you are the king of love that your love is enough. We just pray tonight as we hear your word, as we study your communication to us and your son Jesus Christ, that we would hear those words, that your love is enough. Wherever we're at, whether we're in the middle of a crisis, we've just come out of a crisis, or Lord, perhaps you're preparing us for a season of crisis. Lord, would you speak to our heart today? Help us to know that it's true, that you are the king of love. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3. It's near the back of your Bible. If you need to use the table of contents, there's no shame in that. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, you'll see some on the ends of your rows. Feel free to grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, take one of those as a gift from us to you. And turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. In chapter 1, we saw that God has communicated at many times and in many ways through the prophets in the Old Testament. But now, in this time, He's communicated through His Son, Jesus Christ. In the person of Jesus, we see God's communication. In the work of Jesus, through his life, death, and his resurrection, we see communication from God. But we talked about last week how often we neglect this great salvation that we've heard in Jesus. And as we come into Hebrews chapter 3, we will see another reason why we find ourselves in crisis. Um, have you ever stayed in a hotel room? If you haven't, you should really try it. But what's the difference between a hotel room and home? It's a question I've been asking myself all week. Uh, when I was um, a big-time CPA working for a big firm uh, called Deloitte, uh, I was often on the road. They would send me out to cities to audit companies' financial statements, And oftentimes we'd spend week after week after week on the road. 
And sometimes they would fly us back home on the weekend. Other times we'd just stay through the weekend working long hours. And so I've spent a lot of time in hotel rooms. And here's the thing uh, that's so interesting about hotel rooms, right? They're pretty nice. They're pretty clean. Somebody comes around, changes your sheets, cleans up after you. You can leave your towel wherever you want. They've got a gym, so you've got a gym in your house, a pool in your house. And what was always happened when we were on the road is we had a, a, a food uh, stipend. And it was a lot more than I would spend at food when I was back in Dallas. I was living at Dallas at the time. And so we'd get elaborate, expensive food, always order an appetizer. Sorry, Ali, we don't get to do that anymore. But life seemed like it could be pretty good, right? Now compare this to my living situation back in Dallas, back home. When I moved to Dallas, I moved in uh, with a friend of a friend into uh, their office. And the thing about this office was it only had three walls. The fourth wall was a window to the living room and the kitchen. And that's where I ended up living for the next four years. I never (laughs) moved out. So I had this room, it was very small. Uh, a giant window, and everybody could see uh, what I was uh, doing. They could watch me sleep. Uh, it was very awkward. I finally put up a sheet after about a month and a half, and I finally got blinds after a year. So, I mean, life was, life was good. And uh, for a long time, I slept on an air mattress. I mean, compare that to the hotel mattress. I mean, heavenly beds. It was pretty nice. The other thing that always happened when you went to the hotel, at least uh, when I was in Little Rock, at the Marriott, they give you a nice warm cookie when you show up. I was not getting that from my roommates when I would come home. So you say, well, surely the hotel room, that was, a, that was the better option, right? But if, if you've traveled at all, you realize there's something about hotel rooms. No matter how hard they try to make it feel like home, they never quite get there. In fact, that's the whole business of hotels, trying to make you feel the sense of home, the sense of security. I mean, the security at a hotel is way better than the security at home, right? I mean, we've got one little rickety lock. Half the time we forget to lock it. In a hotel room, you know, it's like World War II up in there. I mean, you like, uh, you lock it down, you lock the main lock, security key, you got to have an advanced degree in IT to hack that. But then if you did hack that, uh, then you got to deal with the deadbolt because you lock that deadbolt. I mean, it's like, oh, closed shut. But then what you do is you lock the chain. I mean, this is a safe place, right? But why is it that every time I stay in a hotel room, I end up scaring myself to death? What do I mean? You've all probably experienced this. You wake up in the middle of the night, you're not quite sure how to get to the bathroom because this isn't your, your house and you're walking and you're, and you're, and you're kind of walking and you're feeling the wall, you know? And then inevitably, at some point, uh, you catch a glimpse out of the corner of your eye and you swear that there's somebody in your room, right? But you're looking at a full-length mirror of yourself, but you're not used to it. And so you jump under the bed and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not coming out. How did they get past all this security? I don't know. That's been my experience. <laughs> and so uh, hotel rooms, uh, we, they long to give us the sense of home. But they can never quite get there, no matter how safe, no matter how secure, no matter how nice, no matter how many cookies they give you. They just can't capture the sense of home. 
even for a single dude living with two other dudes in a three-wall bedroom on an air mattress, a hotel just didn't do it. Why is that? Because you can't manufacture the sense of home. You can't buy your way to the sense of home. You can't click on Amazon and in three days with free shipping have home sent to you. There's incredible rest that happens in a true house. But you just can't make it up. Home is way more special than that. It's way more precious than that. And it's way more elusive than that. So when we realize just how rare the sense of home really is, only then will we see just how good the news of Jesus Christ is. Read with me Hebrews 3, 1 to 5. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be yet spoken. But Jesus Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So what we'll see today is two things. One is some very, very good news. The other is some very, very tragic news. But let's start with the good news. I'm one of the, you know, what kind of person are you? Give me the good news first or give me the bad news first? I'm a, give me the good news first. Here's the great news. The great news is this. We are God's house. So look at what he says here to start in Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Well, I've got to just stop for a moment and just jam on this, right? If you've been around, you know we talk a lot about considering Jesus here at Sedaris. Why? Because everything... We are about, as a church, as individuals, centers on Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The whole reason that we're here in this room today is because of Jesus. So anytime you come to the Word of God, anytime you look at the history of God's people, anytime you look at the Old Testament or the New, the prophets or the apostles, you must always consider Jesus because he is the key to understanding everything. He is the linchpin. I don't know if you're ever a kid and you used, uh, you made perhaps your own invisible ink like lemon juice and red cabbage water. You write something in uh, lemon juice 
Uh, nobody can see it, but then if you spray it with red cabbage water, the ink becomes alive and you can read it. This is how Jesus works in all of God's word, in all of God's history. He's the red cabbage water that we spray on everything to understand it. So right here, the author of Hebrews tells us, consider Jesus. So we like to do that around here. We like to ask, who is this Jesus? And so if you ever need a biblical support for why considering Jesus is so important, come right here to Hebrews 3, 1. Now, what we see and what we hear is that the author, the preacher, is trying to show people how Jesus is different than Moses. And what you've got to understand is that Moses was the most revered figure in all of Judaism, okay? In fact, in later Judaism, at the time when Jesus was actually walking the earth, uh, Moses uh, was that figure in salvation history that everybody looked to. He was the prophet of prophets. Uh, Some even held Moses as being magnified by God as a God. And so in chapter 1 and 2, we saw Uh, Jesus being compared to the angels, and in chapter 3, we see him being compared to Moses. Moses was the servant of God whom God uh, rescued the people of Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, and gave to them the law. So he was an incredibly important figure. And so when uh, the preacher would have brought up Jesus is greater than Moses, this was a huge statement. It was a huge statement. And look what he says. Chapter 2. Just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Jump down to chapter 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Here's what he's saying. The servant versus the son. Moses was the servant of servants. In all God's house, Moses was the servant of servants. But you know what? A servant doesn't compare to a son. And so that little preposition, in God's house versus over, is really the key. Moses had been given certain tasks and certain responsibilities, and he faithfully carried them out. Uh, Full of faith, he had done the calling of God in his life. But that pales in comparison to what a son is, which is over all the house. I was thinking of an illustration to uh, represent this, and uh, for some reason I couldn't help thinking of Bono's hairstylist. Of course, that's where my mind went. But uh, you know those friends who would say something like, guys, I know Bono. And you say to them, you know Bono? Bono's the lead singer of U2. Great hair, by the way. you know Bono? And they say, well, yeah, I mean, I know Bono. It's like, well, how do you know Bono? Well, you know, I know his hairstylist. And uh, 
It's pretty much like knowing Bono. And uh, you say, well, that's not really the same thing as knowing Bono, right? It's like, well, it's his hairstylist. I mean, the most important person in Bono's life is his hairstylist. So I basically know Bono. It's like, well, you don't actually know Bono, right? Isn't knowing Bono better than knowing Bono's hairstylist? Some of you may say no. I say yes. So the difference between Moses and Jesus is one uh, not only of quantity, like Jesus is just way better at this than Moses, it's one of quality. He's just completely different than Moses. And so what, what does he say? Uh, verse 1, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, what is this idea of the heavenly calling? People who share in the heavenly calling. That's us, he says. In fact, this is the first time that this term is used, heavenly. We see it over and over again in Hebrews, so it'll come back up, so I want to explain it here. Um, the writer will also talk of a heavenly gift or the heavenly sanctuary. He'll say heavenly things or heavenly country, heavenly Jerusalem. So again and again, what is he doing? Well, heavenly is contrasting against earthly. And the way that the author is using the, the idea of heavenly is he's saying, yes, there's a uh, an earthly sanctuary, but there's also a heavenly sanctuary. There's an, there are earthly things and heavenly things. There's an earthly country and a heavenly country. And the way he's using it, he's saying the earthly is but a shadow of the more real thing, which is the heavenly. And every time that the word calling is used in the New Testament, ten times it's used, it never comes with it the notion that the person receiving the call is receiving the call from within themselves. The idea of calling is always one of uh, from without, from God. So every time this word uh, calling is used elsewhere in the New Testament, it's always with the idea that God is calling us. Not that we feel the calling, but that God is specifically calling us out into some uh, action or movement. And so to share in the heavenly calling is to be called out by God into his purposes, into his mission, into his work. And every time this idea of calling is used, it's closely associated with becoming identified with the caller, which is, of course, God. So that's why he calls us holy brothers and sisters, for we are closely identified with God who calls us. Now, what is included in this heavenly calling? There's two parts of it, and uh, it comes together right here in the text. The first part of the calling is one of mission. So look what it says when he describes who Jesus is. Uh, this is, again, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, who is who? The apostle and high priest of our confession. The apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, what you probably don't know is this is the only place in all of Scripture that Jesus is called the apostle. Typically, the word is used to describe Jesus' disciples as they are ones who are called out because apostle literally means sent out. But what's interesting and why I think it's so profound that it's used here of Jesus, the only place that it's used of him, 
is that Jesus was the original sent out one, which is what apostle means. So God has sent out Jesus from where? Heaven. And so he sends us as his disciples out to do what? The heavenly calling. Not something that he hasn't done, but something that he has already started. So he is the apostle, and as we follow him and become more and more like him, we learn what it means to live out this heavenly calling that Jesus himself participated in. That's a beautiful truth, that we are sharers in this heavenly calling. And so this idea of being sent out, this is nothing new. Called out by God, sent out by God, it's always the way God has worked. In the Old Testament and the New, and we'll see that as we go today, that God is always calling people out. He's always asking them to respond to his call by faith and move forward in faith towards his promises. That's always how it works. It's how it worked for Abraham when he was called out of his hometown to go to the promised land for the very first time. It was Joseph when he was called out in a dream amongst his brothers that he would save his brothers. It was with Moses when he's called out to lead his people out of slavery. And it was the Hebrew people as they were called out of Egypt to go to the promised land and continue to build a great nation. We too, as Christians in the new covenant, are called out from among all the nations to go to the nations. And so what is this heavenly calling? The first part is that full of faith, as Jesus was full of faith, we go out to preach the gospel message in word and in deed, just as Jesus did when he walked the earth. The second part of this heavenly calling is just as exciting. Just as exciting. So as you've seen in this text, the idea or the picture of God's house comes up again and again and again. And what jumps out at you, or I hope that it does, is the very final part of verse 6. It says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And here's where it gets very exciting. And we are his house. And we are God's house. God considers us his children. If you're following Jesus, if you're boasting in the hope of the resurrection, if you're confident in the work of Jesus, he calls you his child, his son, his daughter. We are his house. We're not a slave or a servant of his house, but brothers and sisters of Jesus. We are his house. And we've got to understand this idea of a house. A house is not a castle made of brick and mortar, but a people. A special people that God has called out. We share in a similar spiritual bloodline. We share in a same mission. We share in a united hope. We are the people of God. We are his house. How many of you watch the Game of Thrones? Raise your hand. Shame on you. No, don't. <laughs> What's funny about this is I made that joke last week and I was going to see how many people raised their hands so I know that you weren't here last week. Nothing wrong with that. 
But I also watched the Game of Thrones. And uh, as I mentioned last week, only uh, to do cultural exegesis. And the thing about the Game of Thrones, it's incredibly helpful in understanding Scripture. Because the context is very different than ours. And in the Game of Thrones, this idea of a house takes on a whole new meaning. If you don't understand uh, the concept of the show, there's all these uh, kingdoms, and they're all ruled uh, by a central uh, government, if you will, uh, but they're competing houses. So you have the House Baratheon, the House Greyjoy, the, Grout, the House Martell, the House Stark, the House Tully, the House Tyrell, and uh, people are always associating with the house. And the house, again, is not just the castle or just the land, but it's the people who are associated with the house. And every house has kind of its, its motto, right? Uh, house Stark, which is kind of, in my mind, the noblest of houses. Uh, their, their motto is, winter is coming. House Tully is family, duty, honor. And here's the thing. Why do people associate with a house? The reason that they associate with a house is because of the protection that that house provides them. It's because of the reputation that that house gives uh, them access to. It's because of the blessings that that house brings upon all those people that are associated with them. So this is what God is talking about when he says, you are my house. So as God's house, we get the blessings associated with God's house. We take upon ourselves the reputation of God's house. We get the protection and the safety and the rest that come with the house of Christ. I liked uh, this whole week, I tried to think of what would our house motto be? Let's let you think about it for a second. What would our house motto be? The house of God. The house of God. Well, two things popped out at me when I thought about we are the house of God. The first is that we are a missionary house. Part of the calling we said is that we go, we're sent out by the apostle and we follow in his footsteps, sent out on his mission. So we're missionary house by the nature of our DNA. Uh, the other thing about our house is that our house is held together by faith. Faith in what? Look at the end of verse 6. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And what is our hope in? Our hope is in the resurrection. So here's what I think our house motto would be. Faith for mission. Hope in resurrection. Huh? No, okay. Think about it. Write it down. Feel free to say it anytime you want to me. Faith for mission. Hope in resurrection. If you can figure out that, take that into battle, you'll be good to go. So we're called out by God, a heavenly calling, and that heavenly calling is first and foremost to be a part of his house, just simply being associated with his house, to be in relationship with the head of the house, that's the first part of the calling, and then to be sent out by the head of the house, Jesus himself, to pursue the mission of the house 
That's the good news of this message. What a joy, what a privilege to be a part of the house of God, to be given a heavenly calling. But like I said, there's some bad news. What's the bad news? The bad news is that although being associated, being a child of God, gives us the rest that God truly wants for us, so often in our lives we never find that rest. Why can't we find the rest associated with the house of God? Here's why. Read with me uh, chapter 3, verse 7 to 11, and then we'll jump up to uh, 16 to 19. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes Psalm 95, and I'll explain what this psalm is referencing. He says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now jump up to uh, verse 16. For you, uh, sorry, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. And that word unbelief is translated lack of faith. Let me explain very quickly what the preacher is referencing here. Who are these people who died in the wilderness? Now what he's referencing back to is a a particular um, scene in Numbers 12 to 14. And the backstory to that scene um, uh, when Israel was in the desert is this. Uh, Jacob's family, Jacob, whose name God changed to Israel took his family down to Egypt. And he took them to Egypt because there was a famine in the land, in Canaan, where they were living, and Egypt had all the food. So he took them down there. And um, for many years they prospered, in fact, because uh, Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, uh, was helping Pharaoh run the country. Now, centuries and centuries went by, but eventually the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, living in Egypt, were enslaved. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, they worked as slaves for Pharaoh. Well, uh, the time came where God's uh, patience had run out in his uh, divine, sovereign, providential plan. He was ready to free them. And the way he did this was by raising up a man, a servant. Guess what his name was? Moses. Moses was God's servant. The servant of servants. We read that in 1 through 5. 
He was God's chosen vehicle for bringing his people out of slavery. So Moses was a great deliverer. And Moses went to Pharaoh, and God told him to say this. He said, let my people go. Well, uh, Pharaoh wasn't so interested in that. And uh, what happened after that was that God basically ripped the people of Israel out of uh, Egypt. And he did this through a series of ten plagues. You've, you've maybe heard of this. Uh, ten plagues God brought upon uh, the land of, of Egypt and the people of Egypt until finally Pharaoh said, enough's enough. He lets them go. And um, as they're going, of course, they run into a great obstacle, which is the Red Sea, a giant body of water. And Pharaoh has changed his mind and he's pursuing them. And what happens uh, is a miracle. God parts the Red Sea and right through uh, the dry land, the people of God walk through the water to the other side and then the water caves in, killing Pharaoh's army. It's a miraculous story of deliverance and liberation from slavery. Now what happens after that is that they don't experience the immediate fulfillment of the rest of the promises of God. And they begin to wander through the desert on their way to what God had promised, the promised land. Now what happens next? God delivers them day and night. He delivers them, bringing them food in the desert, food from heaven, manna from heaven, which is bread. Every day he brings them what they need to survive. Every day. But they must continue to wander. Now, right before we get to the scene in Numbers chapters 12 to 14, what's happened? Well, they've come to the precipice of the promised land. The land that God had promised to his people, flowing with milk and honey. And so Moses sends some spies into the land to check out what are we up against if we were to move our people into this land. Well, what they find um, is that there's some warrior types, some great warriors. And what happens is the spies come back and they report to the people and to Moses. They say, I don't think we can take this land. I don't think that we could win this war. Only a couple of them trusted in the promises of God. And from that generation, only two men, Caleb and Joshua, ever saw the promised land. Now, of course, right after they decide not to take the land, not to trust that God could defeat any enemy, could defeat any obstacle in their way, because he's promised it and he's God, because of their lack of trust, they begin to grumble against God. And it's known as the rebellion. And in Numbers 14.1 it says this, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. Why? Because they knew they weren't going to get the land. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and his brother Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, 
Would that we have died in the land of Egypt? Or would that we had died in this wilderness? Why is it that the Lord bringing us into this land, why is He bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not have been better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a new leader and we can all go back to Egypt. See what's happening? After everything that they'd seen God do, all the miracles, all the plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, the bread in the middle of the wilderness to keep them alive, all of that, they choose to forget. And they say, let's go back to slavery in Egypt. You see how profound a rebellion that is? No people has ever experienced the magnitude, the variety of miracles of God intervening than that generation. And what does the preacher of Hebrews and and the rest of Scripture tell us about that generation? They did not enter the rest of God's house. It's profoundly saddening to think about that generation. No rest. No promises. Fulfilled. No house of God for them because of their lack of faith. Why does the preacher bring up this illustration? It's not just to say that's a problem that they had. He's bringing it up to show them that no matter how much God works in our life, the constant default human tendency is that in times of crisis, we stop moving forward in faith and we turn back and go back to that which God has delivered us from. That is always the default human tendency in times of crisis. We stop moving forward and we go back. But this isn't just a problem for this church in Rome in A.D. 65. It's a problem for us. It's a problem for every generation. We always tend to fight the hand that feeds us. Don't we? I was just reminded of this last night. Uh, Last night as I was trying to put uh, my son Grayson down, three nights a week, my wife Allie works at the hospital, and so it's it's daddy time, man. It's like me and G-Man, and we just crush it, you know. We just watch sports and, you know, jump up and down in our Johnny jump ups, and it's awesome. So let me explain to you the experience I had last night, and it's not an unusual experience. It happens pretty much every night, pretty much every night, 9 p.m., He's clearly tired. He's clearly, he's rubbing his eyes. He clearly needs some rest. He needs some sleep. And so I tried to feed him. I brought him in. We start the routine. I get him, I get him well fed. He seems like he's falling asleep. I set him in his crib. 15 minutes later, 
are you doing, buddy? So I let him kind of like try to figure it out, but he's not, he's not having it. He just keeps wailing, keeps screaming. So I go back in. I pick him up. But even picking him up doesn't help much. He just keeps screaming. He keeps screaming. But he's so tired, but he keeps screaming. It's now 10 p.m., 45 minutes of him screaming and me trying to console him. So I said, i got to try something different. So I take him to his Johnny Jump Up. If you don't know a Johnny Jump Up, you hang it from like a, a door frame, and uh, it's got a little, uh, what do you call this? Spring, spring loaded, and he's jumping up and down, right? He loves this thing. From 10 p.m. until 11 p.m., this kid did not stop jumping, and he is so tired. He is just like, he's like, and he just can't stop jumping. He's screaming, he's jumping. You try to take him out, he screams even louder. For one hour, he jumped in his Johnny Jump Up from 10 to 11. 11 p.m., he's clearly exhausted. Now he's like, So I take him out. I try to feed him again. I try to put him down, right? So I put him down. Uh, I thought, this time for sure, he's good to go. He's so exhausted. He needs rest. 15 minutes later, he just wants to be picked up. I pick him up, he stops screaming. I put him down, he keeps screaming. Now this might be bad parenting, you know, don't call Child Protective Services on me. But, I can't get him to realize that I'm for him, that I'm just trying to help him find rest. And so I say, let's feed him again. And we're sitting in his overpriced uh, rocking nursing chair you know you pay anything to try to get a kid to go to sleep and so we're rocking and I'm feeding him it's now like almost 12 o'clock and he's still fighting me and I never knew this until I had a kid but I actually have quite a bit of neck fat and this kid will just grab onto it when I'm trying to feed him and he's pulling at my neck I'm like, I'm trying to feed you. I'm trying to give you everything that you need. And yet you war against me. What are you doing? All I want is to help you rest. You're so tired. You're so weary. Trust me. I'm for you and I'm not against you. This is how we treat God. We long for rest, but every time God tries to give it to us, to deliver us from that which is sucking our life, we war against him and we fight the process. We resist his help. And I swear to you, the same phenomenon that the preacher talks about that I'll explain in just a second, I saw it in Grayson's eyes. It's almost like when he's screaming, he's purposefully refusing to lock in and realize that I am good for him, that I'm trying to help him. He's almost able to sort of look right through me or past me. And last night I saw it. As soon as that switch flipped and he really saw me and really recognized me, he went right to bed. But for so long, it's almost as if his eyes were warring, were purposefully glazing over to not see me clearly as his helper. Four times the preacher repeats this phrase. They hardened 
their hearts. They hardened their hearts. Why? Because they did not trust God. So they hardened their hearts. Four times he says it. And every time you see him say, hardened his hearts, it's always accompanied with hearing the voice of God. So look at 3.7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, which is to say, that's what the people in the wilderness did. 3.16. 3.16. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? That heard and yet rebelled? Those who hardened their hearts. And 4.2. For the good news came to us. We heard the good news. Just as they had heard, but it did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. Every time we hear the voice of God, whether it's through the presentation of the gospel, whether it's through the reading of his word, whether it's in prayer, we have the decision to truly see clearly and focus in on what he's saying through Jesus or we can harden our hearts. And what is this message that we constantly hear? God loves me. God is for me. God is rescuing me. God is delivering me from slavery. God is adopting me into his house. This is what we hear. But we don't always listen. We don't absorb that truth into our soul. Why is it so hard? Look at 3.13. Look at 3.13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by what? The deceitfulness of sin. The reason why... We harden our hearts, why we choose not to listen when we hear the message of Jesus, the love of God, is because of the deceitfulness of sin. Which is to say, we choose to believe a lie rather than the truth about God. We convince ourselves that God is not for us. We convince ourselves that he does not love us. We convince ourselves that he is not rescuing us. He's not delivering us from slavery, but he's trying to hurt us and enslave us in maybe a different way. We believe the lie that there's something else that will give us what we need, something other than the message we've heard from God. We choose to believe the lie. We choose to harden our hearts towards the deliverance of God. This is the deceitfulness of sin. And it always leads to disobedience because disobedience is essentially the lack of trust. The lack of trust. And so we disobey because we do not trust. The Bible says disobedience is sin, and it's that sin that keeps us from real relationship with God. You see how, see how it all works together. And so we have the separation from God, and therefore we have separation from the rest he so deeply desires us to have. 
And so the promises of our heavenly calling are lost. And the root is a lack of faith. We don't trust God. If you've ever been a teenager, and I'm assuming most of us have, you know that this is how the story of teenage rebellion happens. My parents tell me to trust them, that it's for my good, and I hear the message, uh, I hear the message, and the message is one of loving concern, but I choose to harden my heart towards everything my parents say because I'm a teenager. I choose not to hear the message or believe the message. Why? Because I believe a lie which says my parents are trying to keep me from something better. In my head, I've decided that their instruction, their promise, promises are not worth trusting. It's not worth trusting. Just ask that uh, uh, gal to maybe not vacuum while we're doing service. Okay. This is what I do, right? I've, I've convinced myself, I've bought the, the deceitfulness of sin that the good life is found somewhere else. So something else really makes me happy. So I exchange my parents' version of the truth for my own version of the truth. I disobey them. And when I disobey them, I stop communicating with them because... I want to hide from them because I don't want them to know that I don't trust them. And so I hide from them. This is my rebellion. I'm convinced that they do not love me or that they're only loving me if I obey them. And so you see these layers of distrust and they all build on themselves. And so I don't trust their instruction or their motives or their love. And I rebel. But now, of course, we're all older and wiser, and we see clearly, right? We realize that our parents were really just wanting our best. They were wanting us to thrive and, and to, to reach all that we could, and so they knew that there was things we should not do or things we should do, and so they were moving us towards that. And so in the foolishness of our teenage rebellion, we can only see it now that we're not in the moment. But they did act out of love. They did act with pure motives. They were telling the truth. But we chose to harden our hearts, to plug our ears, to blur our vision purposefully because we didn't like what they had to say. We didn't like what they had to say. And we also do this. <laughs> we pretend when we were a teenager that they don't know what we're doing. We think that we've fooled them that they did not notice our disobedience. But if you haven't figured out this yet, moms have spy networks. They always figure out what you're doing. Dads know what alcohol smells like. <laughs> can't, get, can't get that by them. Now we may have some secrets that our parents don't know about, but how much more does our heavenly father see us? Flip to chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13, it says, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We're just like rebellious teenagers. But God sees everything that we're doing. God's not caught off guard by our rebelling. He's not surprised that we hear his voice and we, we choose some other news over his good news of deliverance through Jesus. 
He's not surprised that we choose to harden our hearts, that we choose not to listen, that we choose to go our own way, that we choose to forget about all the blessings that he's given to us. He's not surprised by that. He sees us. We're completely exposed to him. And yet, like any loving father, he continues to pursue us day in and day out. He continues to want our deliverance from all those things which are not life-giving to things that are. Not because he doesn't know that we're disobedient, but because he loves us despite our disobedience. And so the one thing we need to know when we think about our rebellion, about our, our uh, propensity to harden our hearts when we hear God's voice, we just need to stop. We just need to stop rebelling. We need to stop convincing ourselves that God's out to steal our joy. Stop running away from him when he's trying to help us. Aren't you tired of running? Just stop hardening your heart when you hear the voice of God. If you just stop, then you can start trusting him again. Trusting him again. If you feel like you're wandering, if you feel like you're hardening your heart to God, but you say, I want to get back. I want to start trusting him again. What can you do? The first thing you do, three, one. Consider Jesus. Start looking at him again. Start seeing him again. Start seeing his death and his resurrection and his love and his mercy and his grace. See it again. That's where you start. And then look here at 3.13. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today. We need to help each other see again. Consider Jesus again. To see his love, that he's not out for us, but he's for our deliverance. When we re-engage this message of Jesus, God's love displayed through the cross and through the resurrection, the power proved by the resurrection gives us hope, and we begin to see beyond the shadows of the world and to see the truth of the heavenly things, the truth of the heavenly apostle, the truth of the heavenly Savior, the eternal one, Jesus, God the Son. Because when we see Jesus, we see that heaven has come to earth. The promises of God's kingdom walked and talked amongst us. He ate and he drank and we see him. The hope of the resurrection isn't some myth, but we see that Jesus has actually risen. And so our faith is not blind, it's full of sight. And what we see is Jesus. We're going to play a new song tonight at the very end. It's called No Longer Slaves. And I never heard it before this week, but as I preach or as I prepared, somehow I clicked on something and da -da -da. anyhow, this song comes up and it's a beautiful song. And the line says, we are no longer slaves to fear. We are a child of God. What's the slavery that you need to be rescued from today? What distrusting pattern of life 
do you need Jesus to deliver you from today? What giant obstacle do you believe is too big for God to remove in your life? What Red Sea is standing in your way from all the promises of God's rest? What army seems too powerful for you to overcome? God says, if you let me, I will part that sea for you, child. God says, if you let me, I will deliver you from the bondage that's keeping you from the rest found in the house of God. Um, I have to bring it back to the Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's just crushing my world here. One of the main characters in seasons one, two, and three, and if you haven't seen it, I don't know how many seasons it goes, is Rob Stark from the House of Stark. And his dad is murdered, he's the patriarch of the house, and his sisters are taken away. And do you know what Rob Stark does when his sisters are taken into captivity? Do you know what he does to get them back? He doesn't send a message, he doesn't send uh, a raven, he doesn't make a phone call or an email. You know what he does? He starts a war. He starts a war to get them back. Do you know that God has started a war to get you back? He started a war to rescue you. He started a war to bring you deliverance. So I want us to picture Jesus breaking into this castle in which we are captive. Breaking in. Fighting through the enemy lines to come and rescue us. To bring us home. And he grabs hold of us and he says you're safe. In fact, he does more than that. He turns to the enemy. He says, I'll give myself that they might be free. I'll pay the ransom. Not only does he start a war, but he gives himself as your ransom. This is the picture. But you know what? It's even more dramatic than Jesus rushing in, grabbing hold to rescue you, giving himself as the ransom, his life for yours. It's even more dramatic because you know what we do? When he rushes in, when he grabs hold of us, when he looks us in the eye and he says, I'm here to rescue you. Do you know what we do? Do you know what I do all the time? I push him away. I hesitate. I say, I don't know that I really want you to rescue me. I'm pretty happy here with my captors. I kind of like the life I've got going here. Could you imagine? This is what we do to Jesus. We hesitate. We pause. And sometimes we even push him away and say, I'd prefer if you left. I kind of like it here. Lord, forgive me when I do this. But he keeps coming back time and time and time again. It says, for as long as it is today, He's coming back. He'll never stop raiding the castles of our life to give us liberation and freedom, to give us true rest. He started a war to get you back. And he's the great deliverer, the great liberator, the keeper of his promises. And a famous 
story told by Jesus. I'll close with this. We learn the same thing about God. Jesus told this story and he said, there was once a man who had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, I want right now what's coming to me. I want my inheritance. So the father divided the property between them. It wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags, left for a distant country. There he was undisciplined and dissipated. He wasted everything he had. He went through all his money and there was a bad famine throughout the country and he began to hurt. And so he signed on with a citizen who assigned him the task of feeding the pigs. Basically, he had become a slave. He was so hungry that he'd eaten the corn cobs and the pig slop, but no one would give him even more pig slop. The deepest despair came over his senses, and he said to himself, all those servants working for my father back home, they sit down to three meals a day, and here I am, a son, starving to death. He decided that day to go back to his father's house. And he said, when I get home, I'll say to my father, I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God and I've sinned against you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me as your hired hand. Take me as your servant. Take me as one of your slaves. And so the son got up and he went and he traveled day and night until he came home. And when he was still a long ways off, his father saw him. His heart pounding, the father ran out embraced his son, kissed him. The son started his speech that he'd planned. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again. I will be your hired hand, your servant, your slave. But the father wasn't even listening. He was calling to his other servants, quick, bring him a set of clothes, dress him, put on him the family ring. Put on him new sandals. Then go and kill a cow and roast it. We're going to have a feast. We're going to celebrate. My son is home. We thought he was dead, but look, he's alive. Do you know this is how God sees you? This is the prodigal son. This is how God sees you. Do you wonder what he thinks when he sees your rebellion, when he sees your disobedience, your lack of trust? Do you wonder how he responds if you were to go back to him again, if you were to approach his house again? This is how he would respond. He'd run and he'd grab you and he wouldn't even think about anything but the celebration. This is the story of God. You see it again and again and again. He's out for our deliverance. But we rebel. But he keeps pursuing. He keeps offering his hand of family and love and deliverance. 
But his deliverance never means that we get to stand where we are. It always bids us to keep moving. We don't get to just sit where we are, how we are, in the patterns of life and just receive deliverance. He delivers us so that we can move forward. If you're not finding rest, it's probably because you're not moving forward. His love is his deliverance, not his tolerance. Finding rest always requires our movement. Are you willing to accept the deliverance that Jesus has for you today? That he has for you? Are you willing to enter his house and rest as a child of God? Let's pray.